As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. If you're loving this podcast, we invite you to go deeper and partner with us in our work by joining the Gravity Commons, our online community of practice for connecting and learning together. As a member of the Gravity Commons, you get access to live podcast recordings with upcoming guests, as well as other opportunities to connect and learn together with us in real time. Including learning labs, member meetups, discussion boards, online courses, and our practitioner podcast. Go to gravityleadership.com slash commons to find out more. See you in the commons. Welcome back to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I'm Christy Penley, here with my friends Ben and Matt. Mm. Hey, How are you guys doing? Mm. Yeah. Doing pretty good. I'm good. I'm putting some lotion on my hands. I feel like this is when we record podcasts... Uh, one of the like Pavlovian responses I have is to notice how dry my hands are, and then I start you don't rubbing even them. Live in Colorado? Mm. No, oh, yeah. but speaking of dry hands, yeah, and lips. My lips. Whenever I start uh, talking, is uh, that's like a Pavlovian response. When I notice, I guess it makes sense. But I notice that my lips are dry. If they are well, dry, I notice that when I start talking. So. You have chapsticks everywhere, right? <laughs> your do. car, oh, yeah. your desk, your pocket. I always have to have coat. one within reach. Right, so you have it right there. Yep, and Matt has uh, flossers everywhere. (laughs) And flossers. You know it. I don't have. I don't have those things, guys. Mm. I don't. I don't have my thing. Listeners, tell us what is your thing. I know. Yeah, I want to know what our listeners' thing is. That's a good. You want to know what I keep in my pocket at all times? At all times, I, I actually keep these in my pockets. And only take them out when I wash them. Number one is, you were right, the flosser. <laughs> it's always there, always at the ready. But you know the other thing? What is that? Pre-moistened lens wipes for my glasses. <laughs> okay? I've al- I'm, always, I'm always one accidental finger smudge away from ruining my day because I've got a big greasy... <laughs> 
fingerprint on my okay. glasses. And you can't okay, but this begs to ask, did you keep that in your pocket 10 years ago? 10 years ago. This is wow. totally one of the perks of being middle-aged, Christy. <laughs> okay. I'm you, just curious, what's going to be in your pocket in 10 years? No, it, it won't be a pocket. What are you going to add? It won't some, be a pocket. Like I will the, need like a fanny Steve pack Martin by that time because it'll be, <laughs> there'll be eight or nine things that I'll be lugging around with me everywhere I go. This paddle game. Oh, when yeah. you're 80, you're going to have like the roller suitcase, you and Sharon. <laughs> just <laughs> the kids, oh, the kids you in the neighborhood be... will be like, are those guys homeless? No, that's just, they, they just need all those things. They are prepared. That's what they yeah. are. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So funny. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't um, started lecturing people on why they should also have these things in their pockets, but I'm, I'm, oh. I can feel it inside. I'm like two months away from that. Yeah. I just know that's around the bend. Why? <laughs> okay, you? well, listeners, you can tell us what do you keep in your pocket because I need to. Know. I don't mm. keep anything in my pocket. So. I like to but, have but very see, few women have purses. Women have purses and they purse? load them up. No, no, no. My purse is like this big. It's super tiny. It's like a little pouch, and all oh, okay. it keeps is like my credit card and my license, and then I it's attach like my keys wallet. to it. It yeah, it's like glorified wallet. Yep. Okay. I don't, it's basically, but other like Someday, my wife, I'll, my wife's she have got a big purse. Yeah, like Tylenol, Advil, chapstick, yeah. a change of yeah. uh, lederhosen. She's got everything in there that she needs. <laughs> mm. Okay, my wife well, too. She's very prepared uh, for for any eventuality. Uh, okay, her purse well, is I'm very, need to learn. And her diaper bag. She was comparing diaper bags when when we used to have little babies with diapers. Uh, her diaper bag was like. She was ready for the zombie apocalypse at any moment. We would have enough diapers to survive it. Uh, and I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what that says about me, but I am not prepared. So if there yeah, is something happen, I just hope I'm around strokes. you guys and your wives because yeah. I will rely on all the things that you carry yeah. around. Yeah. Well, my wife. Part of it for my wife is she's an Enneagram Six, and so it's one of the that's one of the perks of being married to an Enneagram Six is. Mm. Uh, you usually just have what you need within reach because she's probably thought about it. So, okay. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, you guys, um, it did an interview without me. Yeah. Not, not, <laughs> how dare not by we? choice. <laughs> how dare you? You sounded a little offended. <laughs> I know. Well, it's coming out. No. Um, I wasn't how able to really be on feel. this one. Yeah. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, that's true. so, I'm excited to be able to listen because mm. I didn't get to hear firsthand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Christina Edmondson, she wrote a new book with Chad Brennan called Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change. And um, yeah, it's great. It's a, it's a great uh, perspective on uh, how to practice anti-racism mm. as a Christian from a Christian perspective. Um, and she gets into, in the book, you know, gets into some of the ways, not just like personal ways, which I think is something we sort of punt to often, which it's not bad, you know, to sort of, I don't know, learn personally what I can do. But um, she also gets into systemic ways we can actually agitate for change on the systemic level, which I think is the harder, uh, it's the harder one for to, for us to imagine uh, just because we're not in control of those levers uh, directly. And so it 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 really does take coalitions. It takes a lot of effort. It takes uh, sort of a long, yeah, long effort in the same direction. Yeah. Anyway, it's a great yeah. book. Yep. And she yeah. was a delight to talk to. She was, she's, she's awesome. so, yeah, I, I wish this could have gone on and on and on. So we'll have to have her back mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. It was great. Um, hey, uh, real quick, 
an event I wanted to let everybody know about uh, that's happening this week. Um, we are having a big Zoom meetup that you can join us for with Bethany Ooh. Dearborn Heiser, who's been on the podcast before. Yeah, she wrote she a has. great book, uh, I don't know, it was last year, 2020, called, um, oh shoot, what's the name of her book? <laughs> From Burnt Out to Beloved. Is that it, Matt? I th- yes. That's her book? Yep. Okay. From Burnout, great book. Burnout to Beloved, yeah. From Burnout to Beloved. And yeah, it's all about soul care. It's all about um, just uh, leaders being, uh, just paying closer attention to their souls. Uh, so this Thursday, April 21st at 12 p.m. Eastern time, uh, Christy, that'd be 10 a.m. your time, Mountain Colorado time. Friends. Colorado Morning Friends, 10 a.m. California, uh, Oregon, West Coast Friends, that's 9 a.m. Just doing some translation here mm. because we've had some recent experiences. Through, well, there's time, only 50 states. Zones, we have time to do all of them. Let's go. <laughs> here we go. Yeah. But 2 p.m. But Eastern I, time. I, I, the only one we didn't do is Central. That's going to be 11 a.m. So, okay. So that is when the event is happening. And why would you want to come? Because Bethany Dearborn Heiser is going to be there. And she is going to outline for us n- internal narratives. These are false beliefs that uh, prevent us from seeking the care that we need. Um, so this is for caregivers, for pastors, for leaders, uh, for and, and there's all kinds of these internal narratives that come up for us when it's maybe time to seek some soul care, get some therapy, like do what we need to do to rest and get the care that we need for ourselves. But there's these narratives that prevent us from doing that. And so, um, like for example, one of the ones that comes up for me a lot is I can't afford to take a break right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all up to me. There's yeah. a there's a lot of weight on my shoulders. And so that's like an internal narrative that like when I have an opportunity to rest, I think, nah, I can't afford it. I can't do it. Right. So yeah. Bethany's going to highlight some of those things. And then she's going to end with some, like some practices, actually like some reflection and prayer practices right on the call, on the Zoom meetup for us to examine what those narratives are for us and and make a plan of action going forward. So I'm really excited about it. Yeah. There's a link to register. You'd have to register for it. Um, and there's a link in the show notes to register for that Zoom meetup this Thursday, April 21st at noon Eastern. Sweet. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking forward to sweet, it. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Good stuff. All right, All right well, let's, <sighs> let's get into the interview. Go, Here we go. Go, go, go. Dr. Christina Edmondson joins us today to talk about her new book, actually releases as the day we're recording, that she wrote with Chad Brennan. It's called Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change. Dr. Edmondson holds a PhD in counseling psychology from Tennessee State University, an MS degree from the University of Rochester in family therapy, and a bachelor's degree in sociology from Hampton University. For over a decade, she's served in a variety of roles, including recently as the Dean for Intercultural Student Development at Calvin University, additionally as a certified cultural intelligence facilitator, public speaker, and mental health therapist. Christina is often contacted by churches to consult about leadership development, anti-racism, and mental health issues. Her writing is prodigious and can be seen on various websites, and she's also one of the co-hosts of one of our favorite podcasts, Truth's Table. Christina, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm I'm excited to be here, and uh, thank you for the invitation. Yes, I mentioned it was the release day for this book. Do you have any special <laughs> plans? 
Oh, let me see. What? No, I, I don't think I have. I have work. Those are my special <laughs> plans. <laughs> the plans of working, and then in, and then in between, and then in between that, uh, getting my oldest daughter to to play practice. She's got a play coming up in a week, mm-hmm. and so it's play practice every night. So it's, it's serious mm-hmm. business for the theater yeah. head. So, um, so those those are my plans: is to make sure that we eat and uh, to <laughs> to check all the boxes today. Yeah, life doesn't stop uh, when yeah. the book Great. releases. Great. No, it, it does not stop. But it's been really cool seeing so many people uh, post about it and, and retweeting about it. And um, so that that's that's really great to see people connecting to it and wanting to promote it. Yeah. One of the things that uh, was unique, I felt, about this book, I hadn't seen in other books. One of the appendixes is a list of, I think it's like 30 people that you and Chad interviewed for the book and talked to about uh, racism, anti-racism, systemic justice, things like that that come mm-hmm. up in the book. Where did you get that idea, and how did that how did that change the book that you wrote, um, or contribute yeah. to the book that you wrote? So yeah, we we didn't start off uh, with the idea to necessarily do that. Um, so we started off really with you know we knew that we wanted to have um, this, a multidisciplinary approach. We were going to certainly be engaging this large research project that uh, Chad, Michael, and others had been been a part of. So you'll see that information um, throughout the book as well. But it was in the course of writing it that we just had some questions that came up, and we were like, oh. Let's go talk to the people. <laughs> so, but I think that's part of kind of our both. I think my therapist, researcher, practitioner, mm. and, and and Chad's researcher approach is like if we have a question, like let's let's not assume, let's let's dig around. Um, and so we were able to do a series of interviews, and this is in the midst of you know as we begin to learn about you know what COVID what COVID became and what it is, um, we were able to do a number mm-hmm. of virtual interviews. If people want to check those out, they can go to www.faithfulantiracism.com and they can look at a whole host a whole host of those interviews of us talking to all kinds of, of people mm-hmm. who gave us their time to discuss this topic. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it's, I'd love to hear the story about how you knew you needed to write this book and how you and Chad uh, either met or came together to create this book. Um, I know mm-hmm. some of your backgrounds in leadership development and cultural intelligence, um, consulting, and even there at Calvin University, there, there were probably a lot of overlapping arenas of your life that were brought to bear in this book, but why this book for you and why now? That's a good question, Matt. <laughs> I, sh- I should have a uh, refined elevator response, re- elevator speech <laughs> response to that. And I and I I don't only in the sense that I, I'll start with the with the part about how did I meet uh, Chad, right? And so uh, I jokingly yeah, always yeah, yeah. tell Chad that if when we get this question, it's like, how did we form the band? How did the band come to be? Um, and so, um, and we, you know, I we were in, um, you know, kind of kind of the circle of people who do. Uh, who are who are believers who are Christians who uh, do justice work related to a variety of topics, right? Whether it's um, environmental justice or um, uh, human trafficking or or related to racial justice, right? Um, there's a kind of a an ecosystem, <laughs> if you will, uh, for resources and encouragement, et cetera. And uh, some years back, um, it feels like a very long time ago because the COVID years were be- are between that, right? And those are like seven years in one. Um, but but mo- maybe about three or plus years back, uh, we both were invited to an event um, on the West Coast um, that was facilitated by um, uh, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. 
And uh, she uh, is well known um, in the work of, of racial reconciliation and racial justice uh, with a very distinct and committed, devoted Christian voice and, and Christian engagement on those topics. And so she convened um, kind of a, a intellectual party <laughs> of, of people to come together. And so I, I got to mm. be in the same room with a number of people, including including Chad Brennan, as well as Michael Emerson, and, and they had worked on this larger research project together, right? So, um, and, and, and I think in that space, along with a number of other people who were present, we got to talk about kind of, you know, what our interests are, what we're working on, what, we, what do we, uh, we got to kind of get a sense of, from each person's perspective, like what, what's happening, <laughs> what's happening in the country on this topic, uh, what's, what's going on with the saints and the ain'ts <laughs> right now. And, um, and I think from there, probably my guess is a number of um, synergistic projects begin to begin to bubble up. Christina, I wanted to ask you about um, some of your story. You, you, t- you tell us a little bit about your story. And I think if I remember it and get it right, that you grew up in a in a predominantly black church setting, but for much of your professional career, adult life, you've been in more white church spaces. Um, and, and so then some of your work with the cultural intelligence and anti-racism has been navigating in those white spaces. Um, what, maybe, maybe as a, a, a prefaces to jumping into some of the book's content, like what have you learned as someone who's trying to help white people become anti-racist? What are some of the obstacles that you encounter? What are some of the things that you've learned that you feel like contributed to writing this book? Oh, yeah, sure. So generally speaking, in terms of my personality, I, you know, I'm, I, I tend to, you know, I, I am a learner, um, an eclectic learner in terms of my style. And so if there is an issue or a struggle or whatever is happening, I, I think I tend to figure out, okay, is there a way, are there resources about this? Is there a way that I can learn more about it <laughs> to study it? And so, um, yeah, I think in some ways the spaces where I found myself through the humor of God, um, <laughs> just it, it, it was like, oh, I, I have more things to learn. And there were some mm. things that I think I understood maybe I, to some degree intuitively, but I think I, um, even if I think my discernment is somewhat strong, I, I'm still going to be like, let me make sure what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking uh, is lining up with, you know, historical reality and with, you know, present data, et cetera. Um, yeah. so, so I think that that was part of what it is. It was kind of out of necessity and interest because of the spaces I was navigating. Um, and I did, I did, I grew up in, um, uh, Black Baptist Church context, uh, church in the Progressive Baptist tradition, which is connected to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and as a kid, I mean, honestly, I thought that like that was church. I was like, everybody goes to a church like this. Of course, <laughs> this is what church yeah. is like for all the people all around the world, right? So kind of that narcissistic adolescence, we all we all frame ourselves. Hopefully we grow out of it, right? Some of us are still kind of riding out uh, narcissistic adolescence in our kind of cultural understanding. Um, but yeah, but as I got older, right, entered, entered into early adulthood, um, I had the opportunity to really experience uh, a, a greater diversity within kind of African diasporic or, or in Black American church tradition. And mm-hmm. then I would say about in the last decade, I have uh, had much closer proximity um, serving um, and in conversation with um, uh, 
congregants as well as leaders in predominantly uh, white spaces. So growing up, we would have never, ever used the language evangelical, like never. Um, yeah. <laughs> we would have we used Bible believing. Um, mm. We would have probably used the language that evangelical, I think, is supposed to, you know, historically is representative of, uh, mm -hmm. minus the political cultural <laughs> pieces that we associate it with now. Um, yeah. And so we would not have used that language. But, you know, I, I grew up in a church that, you know, on one Sunday, you know, you might have someone like Jesse Jackson uh, praying. And then another Sunday we might be supporting or preparing to support a Billy Graham revival. Um, and, and as a kid, I would have not known that, like, that would have been a tension. <laughs> um, like I know it now. Yeah. <laughs> as a kid, I would yeah. not have known that. Um, so very much so evangelistic. Everybody needs Jesus, but very much so that Jesus changes you. And mm. in as much as Jesus changes you, um, and you have influence, um, or persuasion or favor or opportunity, you change what's around you. <laughs> so, yes. uh, justice was a kind of, kind of an assumed expression of the Christian walk. Yeah. And that really comes through in this book. Um, I think that, um, you know, the subtitle is moving past talk to systemic change. Um, but I don't want to sell short the fantastic talking this book does. Like, this book, it's like, you know, I, I know, I appreciate the heart of, gosh, are we just going to talk about this forever or can we do something about it? Um, but the way that you lay out various uh, streams, theology, history, ethnography, uh, psychology, and the chapter on racial trauma and other areas, um, it's just a wonderful integration that we don't typically get to hear all the streams that are flowing into this lake that is the problem of racial, you know, injustice. Uh, we don't often get to listen to all of them in concert, and your book does that really well. I'm so glad you think that. I mean, that's, a, <laughs> I, I really appreciate hearing you say that. That is really our hope and our intention. And I think uh, for Chad and I both, you know, I, I tend to have a, um, yeah, whatever's in the refrigerator, let's see what we can make out of it kind of approach. Mm approach to learning. Um, and, um, and so very much so trying to take a multidisciplinary approach and um, really love the doctrine of common grace. I'm like, let's, let, let's explore and learn all the things. Um, and so we attempted to do that and to try to do it justice, also knowing that we wanted to stay in, stay in our lanes. You know, I think um, there's, there are a lot of things that I have an appreciation for but I'm not an expert in that. So we wanted to present information uh, in, in with humility <laughs> and, then yeah. and then point people to kind of the longstanding experts in those, those areas. Yeah. Yeah, so I, th that's super helpful, I guess, in terms of background. Um, maybe, maybe we could just do a quick sort of overview of, of definitions here, just in case the listeners are unaware or just catching up, or maybe they've heard this term anti-racism. And they're not really sure what to make of it. Um, what what would you say you mean by anti-racism? You know, if we we can get there, and then why is this book called Faithful Anti-Racism? What what does that qualifier do um, for you and and for the book? Yeah, so I'm glad you asked that question, Ben, because I am prepared <laughs> to answer that one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I imagine you would. I am. Yeah. I am. I yeah, am. Yeah, and so yeah. and so and actually, you know, the title of the book comes from a course that I designed. So I've been using okay. kind of the language of faithful anti-racism for a couple of years, a few years. Um, and so I was grateful that Chad and others were like, yeah, let's 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 work with that because um, it was kind of already kind of in in, in my verbiage. Um, mm -hmm. 
So when we, th- when we think about anti-racism today, <laughs> so uh, a lot, you know, there are a lot of concepts that we have that live within a particular discipline or they live like in higher education. And then I think of them as kind of getting pulled out and like put in, put into like the mainstream world. They become like pop culture. And so yeah. and when they get pulled out of their discipline or in, you know, the intellectual enterprise or institution where they were developed and then they get moved into pop culture, sometimes uh, they kind of lose. <laughs> they kind of they kind of lose what, what, what they're really about along the way. Right. Oh, yeah. And sometimes yeah, yeah. sometimes that's good for accessibility purposes. But if you think about something like implicit bias, which has been around as a concept for 30, right. 40 years, but only mm-hmm. in the last decade has it moved into pop culture language. And so people kind of miss a whole lot of a lot that's really underneath that concept so it's kind of been politicized etc you name it so um so giving you that that opening statement um so anti-racism over the last few years we've often associated that with the more contemporary work of people like Ibram X Kendi right and so and Kendi did a really good job although he's a historian not a social scientist (coughs) he did a really good job of of, of taking this idea and, and presenting it in a really teachable way. So this idea of, you know what, mm-hmm. it's not good enough to say that you are not racist, speaking kind of in the voice of, you know, white majority person, I'm not a racist, um, mm-hmm. hit, but instead saying, no, racism is kind of in the ecosystem. It's kind of built in, like, like, the, like do, you, do you know the story of how this, this came to be, right? The right. Uh, indigenous genocide, the enslavement of Africans, right? The mm-hmm. uh, intentional exclusion of, of groups, for example, the Chinese Exclusion Act for, for decades that was in place, right? And multiple, mm-hmm. multiple, multiple other examples. And so he's like, that's kind of what's in the ecosystem. That's what it is. So to say I'm not, I'm not racist means that you're not putting in any effort of resistance, your autopilot. And to be autopilot mm-hmm. in a racist ecosystem, and that's not all the United States is, but that is definitely some of what the United States is, um, then, then, then your autopilot allows the perpetuation of the system of injustice, right? So he's like, right. hey, be anti-racist, resist the thing. So he gives mm-hmm. us, he, he, he as well as others, right? Um, uh, do do a nice job of taking that concept and uh, and allowing us to have, I think that very teachable and helpful talking point. What I remind people is that as long as we have had um, race construction on the agenda of of human stratification, so race, uh, race is an English word. We've used it, you know, it's been used for <laughs> generations to describe type or kind. Um, but around the 1600s or so, we think about race as a way to categorize for the purpose of stratification. Yes. Right. Categorize right. on the agenda of stratification. And why do we want to do that? Well, because we want some people that we want to say are, are in charge. And we want yeah. others that we can say is like, oh, you are perpetually and inevitably designed for to be at the bottom of this kind of social caste system or hierarchy, depending on the language you want to use. And yes. so as long as you've had that, you've had the people who have said, uh-uh. Not so. <laughs> so as long as you have had, you know, people who were like, you know, race-based chattel slavery, you've had the abolitionist. And so right. as long as you have had race for the purpose of categorizing and stratifying, you've had anti-racist saying not yeah. so. And I would make the case um, in as much as we've had people who uh, promoted race-based stratification uh, in the name of Jesus, we've also had people who promoted anti-racism and abolitionism in all its form, in all of its uses, in the name of Jesus as well. Mm-hmm. And so um, so anti-racism, I think when people typically hear that, and we had a whole kind of you know, healthy debate about what would happen for people who already have been told in their own ecosystem 
this is a bad thing. Stay away from anything that says anti-racism, right? And and I said, well, if if they're already brought into that, this may not be their entry-level book anyway. Right. And I don't think right. that we're all called to convince the same people at the same time. We, we all have different, no, different audiences. And I, and I have mm-hmm. no desire to go to an audience that is saying, you know, I, I can't stomach the word and I'm not willing to even understand it. So that's pro- I'm probably not, this book is probably not um, yeah. the book for them. But I, but I pray that there is mm-hmm. a book or a resource for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that's super helpful. That's good. That's good. Maybe we we can turn our word to that our attention to that word faithful. Yeah. Because you do in this book, Christina, spend a great amount of time uh proclaiming that it's our heritage to uh socially arrange ourselves in more just ways and to deal with oppressive systems that create injustice. Maybe as a as a just a, a brief little picture into that, could you maybe connect how scripture operates in this way, like a story or two in the ways we see that happening, and then help us to apply that or bridge that to today in ways we could maybe, you know, um, uh, innovate or what's the word I'm looking for? (laughs) Improvise. Yeah, Yeah. improvise upon that script today. Yeah, yeah. So the first thing that came to mind, Matt, I I begin to think about just what happens... um, what happens at the cross? What what happens? Like what what happens like cosmically and like mm. in very tangible ways? Like what happens at the cross? Um, and one of the things that we know is that within the temple and the temple at that point had become an expression of religious endorsed social stratification. Right. So yes. uh, before Christ goes to to the cross, uh, we have uh, the Lord going in going into the temple and seeing people, um, you know. Um, excluding others and, and selling things. And it's just this kind of wild scene where Jesus, you know, flips the table, right? And everybody wants to be the table flipping Jesus. But what what we can glean is that the, the, the part that makes him so angry is that this is supposed to be a place of prayer. It doesn't stop there. For all people, <laughs> mm. right? Mm. So, so it, it, is the, it is the exclusion on the agenda of greed that is what is that creates that table flipping dynamic and we in in Christ references the the prophetic teachings right so drawing on the prophetic teachings to to connect the dots in that moment rebuking those people but also when Christ is on the cross right and this and that curtain that curtain that um that is that is kind of keeps us from having access because now we have an immediate a mediator so we have full access to god but those partitions weren't just dividing us between humans and god there were partitions that were dividing us uh from human to human and one of the things that i i think is important that when we promote um social caste systems categorizing for the purpose of stratifying racism, (laughs) we are bold enough to get to the bottom of that curtain that Christ's blood has ripped and try to stitch it back together to try to create the separation. Um, Another story that comes to mind, and this will be my, I guess my last one, unless you want me to tell tell some more Bible study, you know, my my life goal is to be a great Sunday school teacher, by the way. Mm. Um, (laughs) But, but, you know, there's a, there's a New Testament story, right? Where, where, where Paul is um, in his mind being annoyed and and stalked by an enslaved girl. Mm. 
who is being exploited for um, you know divination, kind of what this what this spirit can make her do, and um, and and that and she's calling out kind of who they are and, and driving him crazy. Right, the scripture even notes that he's annoyed, so he finally stops, and he he casts out right um, that spirit that was possessing her. And when he does that, the people who were making a lot of money <laughs> because of her subjugation and bondage. So she was subjugated because of their misuse of her, right, as an enslaved girl, but also by spiritual bondage, by being possessed, right? And when the apostle sets her free, when she's truly free, and, and, and that impacts economic systems, by the way, <laughs> right? Because when oppressed people really are free in Christ, uh, it impacts things like the transatlantic slave trade, right? Yes. And the response was, hold up, right. we were ignoring these guys before, but I think it's time to kill them. So, so I mean, this is Christina's interpretation, but 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 track, Yo, it's good. but, it's but good. track it with me. I feel like I'm I'm giving it a fair a fair account right now. So mm-hmm. I'm here I'm here for it. Thank you. Yep. And so so really the the what I what I try to remind people is that when we um when the gospel this this uh, which is more than just like me and my personal salvation, which is beautiful and Lord knows I need it, but has real cosmic and social and here and now and eschatological implications when it really comes to bear. Oh, people aren't always happy because it because it has something to say about Mm -hmm. systems of bondage and oppression that that cannot exist in Christ's name. Yeah, for what it's worth, I would totally come to your Sunday school class. (laughs) (laughs) Like if there was like a roster of like, and you were teaching one of them, I'd be like, I'm going to that one. Thank you, Ben. Yeah. Hi, my name is Jill Brown and I'm from Midland, Texas. I have been in a gravity leadership cohort for the past year and a half. I am not employed by a church, but I was interested in spiritual transformation, so I decided to join a group. At times, my life had felt like I was operating out of a fragmented, achievement-driven, broken place. But during these weekly Zoom calls, the gravity training has helped me integrate and embody God's love in my life and I have a greater sense of this wholeness to share with others. If you've ever felt like there was something missing in your understanding of God, or if you are curious about how God shows up in your everyday life, check out Gravity Leadership and see if it's for you. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. I've never thought about that story in that way. Um, that the, and the thought occurred to me that like, that's, that's the reason oppression exists, right? It, there, there's always an economic, there's a survival kind of element to it. It's all rooted in fear, fear of not having enough. And so if I don't keep these people enslaved, if this girl doesn't keep doing her prophecies, like, you know, what am I going to have? I'm not well, going to have enough. Yeah. So, you know, so Walter Brueggemann does a great job of, of unpacking this when he, when he talks about, uh, you know, kind of the Exodus narrative or really just kind of, right, so you think about Pharaoh, right? So mm-hmm. Pharaoh's beef is like, wait a minute, they're growing, bi- these, these people are getting large in number. I think they might start to act like me. 
That's yeah. really what he says. They might become yeah. like me. They might yeah. do to me what I've done to them. And so yeah. let me let me um, let me press oppress them even more. Let right. me uh, require of them things that are even more inhumane. I want them to stay in this condition, right? And so yeah. um, the hardening, right, was a product of Pharaoh's fear. And if you think about that, if you apply that to some of our conversations that we have today, I mean, I can think of a a fairly famous uh, uh, kind of American Christian figure who basically kind of said that in so many words that when they're looking at these conversations about anti-racism, they feel anxious because um, they believe that the people of color will rise up. <laughs> they will, they will mm. rise up and become uh, the, the, the subjugators, right? And, um, yeah. and that fear, right, that, that irrational fear, you hear that as it relates to gender dynamics, right, all the time. It's, you know, oh, yeah. what happens if women have equity, <laughs> right? right. Um, and uh, instead of being like, well, that's what people are do because they're human. <laughs> they're humans. We have to, you know, be, do right by each other. There is this fear mm. of, well, well, they're going to make us be quiet and they're, gonna tr- mm-hmm. they're going to treat us the way that we have treated them or we have allowed or we've benefited from their mistreatment. So I think, Ben, you're right about that root of fear. And again, you know, perfect love cast out fear. We really, really need, we need, we need love as the antidote to that kind of fear. Yeah. There's just a profound level of fragility and fear. Um, Speaking of profound levels of fragility and fear, I wonder (laughs) if- Hey, I'm right um, right here, Ben. Are you going to talk about (laughs) that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Plug your ears, Matt. No, <laughs> no uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of our listeners are involved in leadership of some kind or another. Some of them are pastors. Um, and I think probably have people in their congregations who wouldn't really jive, right, with anti-racism that feels scary or yeah, yeah. You know, have a lot of these fears and kind of embedded in their bodies. And I think there's a lot of our listeners who want to know how to talk about this with uh, they're people, um, but are afraid of the obstacles, um, maybe are afraid of the pushback that they might get. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you've been doing this kind of work for a long time in white spaces. Like, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the the obstacles and the pushback that you get and maybe the ways that you have approached uh, overcoming those obstacles. You know, you said earlier that you're you know, your book isn't for everybody if you're <laughs> unwilling to, you know, have the conversation. Of course not. But for people who are, who have genuine, like, oh, this is coming up for me and I don't know what to do with it. Like, maybe you could outline what some of those obstacles are, what, what some of the pushback that you get. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a pretty um, impressive, by that I don't mean like it's good, but like <laughs> elaborate, yes. um, a, a system that's been in place for generations, right? Of, mm-hmm. I mean, I would, you know, this is my bias, I would call it propaganda, right? But there's, a, there's, a, yeah. there's an entire um, mythology mm. about, mm. Um, about America, about, about Christianity, about explanations for racial and racial disparity why there are maybe economic or incarceration differences etc and so um i think it's important for for clergy and i've 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 worked in leadership uh cohorts where i've specifically worked with pastors um or denominational leaders etc and you know one of the things that that i often say is that you know people don't know (laughs) they don't know their congregants (laughs) 
<laughs> now, now, with that being said, it does not mean, I, I mean, I, I have, I'm married to a pastor. I mean, I, I, I have a lot of high regard and appreciation for, for clergy, and they know them in the sense that this is the person that's there uh, with yeah. them when, the, when they get the news that the, the baby's heart rate has stopped or, you know, mm-hmm. just horrible, mm-hmm. painful things. So yeah. pastors yeah. know in terms of weeping with the people that weep, right? But this, it's not uncommon for pastors to be really shocked. Like, they'll, they will preach a sermon on something that they feel like, my people, they know we have to love our neighbors, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, they get hit with these emails, and they may not have even mentioned certain political issues, depending on if it's around the election cycle. They didn't even mm-hmm. mention a political issue, and they're getting emails from people that are like, you know, what about the borders? And they're like, did I talk about the borders? <laughs> like, mm, so, uh, and right. so all of that to say is that one of the things I tell people to do is you should ask people what informs their thinking. Hmm. Now, a lot of, a lot of like, you know, devout Christians, you know, will say like the Bible, it's just the Bible. And I'm like, that's not what the data says, and I'm not going to push you back. <laughs> right. But, but, but I would, but I would say, no, no. So, you know, when you go home and you, you know, the news or what are you reading? And I try to engage people around where they're getting their sources of information. And then the question mm-hmm. that I ask, this is more like a teaching philosophical question. What would it cost you mm. if this perspective was true? Oh, that's good. What would it cost? Now, I'm not saying that it is true. We'll dissect it together. Right. We'll discern it Let's together. But would it cost you something? And if you can acknowledge that it might, it might cost you uh, a particular picture in your mind that you have of your family of origin and your Sunday school mm-hmm. teacher that taught you or or mm-hmm. the mythology or your belief about America or um, or or. If this isn't true about Christ, about Christians, and what else isn't true, or is there a fear of everything unraveling, right? Which is which is some of what we saw happen around, you know, kind of Gen Z, millennial, maybe old, maybe older, um, white evangelicals. Uh, if you think about the last, you know, this this the last couple of election cycles, right, where you saw people say like, "Wait a minute, I thought I knew y'all," <laughs> and if this isn't, you know, this I'm concerned, and um, yeah. and so all of that to say is, I would be asking those. Uh, I would be preparing the soil for learning by asking kind of the educational, emotional questions. What Mm -hmm. is learning this? What if this is true? What does it cost you? Because when on an implicit or unconscious level, uh, we know that it's going to cost us something. We start putting up our defenses. We're, we're, and we've right. been given, we have given people <laughs> through this elaborate, impressive enterprise, they have been given all the rhetoric. They're coached yep. well on what yep. to say uh, to, to push back, to resist, and to, say, and, to, and to really kind of, I would say, um, make an excuse to not yeah. engage or to not yeah. love. Yeah. Yeah, I especially appreciate that question of what would it cost you. I, I think that is something that it brings awareness to the real reasons that we're sort of making decisions and thinking the way that we're thinking that we we don't often realize. We think we're just talking about, uh, you know, this is true. No, I read this is true, and we're thinking we're talking on the level of information and facts, but really there are we're we are operating in, out of these deep fears sometimes, out mm-hmm. of these deep longings, out of these deep desires. Um, and and bringing those to the surface in a gracious way can be really can be really helpful. I especially appreciated your way of what if it's what if it is true? You know, it's like a non-threatening way of exploring something. You know, for for someone who maybe is in defensive mode, um, it's a way of calling them out of that. I think that's really wise and pastoral. Yeah, amen. Um, so. I want to return, Christina, to the comment previous to that question by Ben and say, we've, we've, I want to move into like systemically, like how do we 
organize and cons- and advocate for systemic change? What kinds of systems need to change, and and w- what does it look like for us to maybe even reimagine discipleship and mission around that transformation and change? Um, but you've we've we've talked about you know racism, we've talked about uh, mammon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, money, and we've talked about patriarchy, right? Mm-hmm. Men and women, and those three. I don't even know the word I want to use to describe them. Things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they, they, it's so hard to pull them out and look at them separately mm-hmm. because of how they function together um, mm-hmm. in many ways. Um, and so we're, we're studying Mammon right now. Uh, just con- it's, it's a class for Lent called Confronting Mammon with Jesus. And we're looking at all, the, all these teachings in the New Testament and which, how Jesus engages. Um, and, and one of the things we're... F- confronted with as a church is, my gosh, this system is so big and powerful. What can we, what can we even do? Um, and so I wonder, you know, as, as your book is, is helping us answer that question when it comes to being an anti-racist, what are some things we can do? Yeah. How do we, what, how do we activate to change systems? Yeah, that's a, that is a great question. I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> as you were, you know, um, as you were talking and you were describing, you know, kind of those 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 three uh, issues, right? Um, I was from, so, from social sciences, right? You know, I, I studied sociology, but emphasis, emphasis was in race, class, and gender. Um, mm. And people tend there are there are believers, right, within this debate that we're having about you know social justice, et cetera, who get kind of flustered about that, right? And um, will say like, you know, you see everything through the world through this lens. And I would say that one of the one of the reasons why one of the I believe the earliest uh, baptismal creeds was Galatians three twenty eight is because it was specifically about the ways in which the gospel <laughs> it doesn't remove our it doesn't remove our, our you know our biological sex or gender it doesn't you know um, change our ethnicity but it it says something about who we have mm-hmm. become in Christ so that neither. Um, Male and female, Greek or Jew, slave or free—that is race, class, and gender. <laughs> and um, and and it's fascinating to me that that is what people were initially—that's what they were saying as they were baptized into the body of Christ, because the the people of the early church they knew about social stratification, <laughs> they knew about they knew a thing or two about injustice. I mean, their Lord and Savior died as a result from a human level of. A, a political injustice, right? Um, r- religiously validated and supported uh, political injustice, by the way. Um, and so I, I think that it's okay for us to talk about the ways in which we are uniquely vulnerable to not loving our neighbor around issues of race, class, and gender. With that being said, with that being said, I, there are a whole whole host of ways that we can engage. First, I tell people, do not despise the position that you are in. Oftentimes we're like, well, I'm not going to be the next, you know, um, social activist or, you know, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not in a place to change laws or policies or et cetera. But wherever you are with whatever you have, do good. That's the call. Do good, do justice wherever you are uh, in the location that you are in. Do not despise it. And so I first tell people to take stock 
take stock of where what are your circles of influence and authority. <laughs> so, so for the people who have bigger circles and they've got more authority, they make hiring and policy decisions, they're able to stand up and, and give apologies and think about reparation for uh, longstanding uh, racial injustices. Well, they've got, I think, you know, They've got more burden on them. They've got more responsibility on them, right? Um, but everybody needs needs to be kind of creating their that their own schematic of of where are my circles of, of influence, um, what am I responsible over, and and how do I engage this with integrity? There are lots mm-hmm. of things that I would say um, that local churches as as a community can do, right? So when a when a church um, is in a place, uh, if you think about kind of just, you know, uh, uh, people that meet kind of in a building. For that. Mm-hmm. We ought to do, we ought, we, our presence there ought to, ought to help that neighborhood. <laughs> like, we shouldn't be a burden. Like, the fact that, like, the Christian people are over there in that building doing what they do throughout the week, um, that ought to be some type of light to that community. And I think that there are some ways in which we can, we can actually show up. We can show up at the local school board meeting. We can show up, <laughs> you know, we, we can show up when there are questions about um, building roads or uh, that are going to impact people's ability to get to jobs. Uh, so there's all kinds of ways that we can just actually just be present, present. Mm-hmm. And Christianity, you know, our faith is a deeply political faith. Now, that's different than partisan. Political. We are absolutely political. Christians uh, make the the wild claim that that the Lord is is Lord of all, that we serve the King of Kings. These are these are political positions, by the way. Right. And uh, so that that's the case that we make. And so as ambassadors for Christ, we have political obligations in terms of how we show up and use our social currency in different ways. And so those are just some practical applications. I would say the other way is to be just absolutely informed um, that we don't get to hide behind ignorance or to take the Lord's name in vain by saying things like, well, I just don't, you know, I'm just not thinking about that. Um, I've just, you know, I'm just focused on Jesus, like using Jesus as an excuse, using Christianity as an excuse to not understand or love our neighbor. Um, yes. That's a, that's, a, that's a real temptation and something that I think, uh, I know I, I've certainly witnessed. Yeah. I think for many of our listeners, we've, we come from, a lot of the white Christians that listen to us come from one of two backgrounds. One is sort of this, grew up in the more majority religious right culture war and they're they're trying to get out of that. They're trying to reimagine a political identity that isn't uh, that crassly concerned with just power, right? At the expense of at the expense of you know black people and women and other people. Um, and then this this other thing you just named, which is you know what um, I don't I the kingdom is not of this world. I'm focused on Jesus. Um, the problem is the right and the left, and I'm going to I'm going to rise above it and have an apolitical faith. And those seem to be the two ditches that a lot of well-meaning white Christians fall into. What are some of... We have a lot to learn, and I think the Black Church can teach us. Uh, maybe you can teach us too here, Christina. Like, wh- <laughs> well, wh- how I'm do, learning how too. Do we, how do we embody an engaged political presence in the public square that doesn't succumb to those two ditches? Yeah. So, yeah, I think part of it is knowing that um, 
that we we have a particular calling to show up. So so um mm. so the the so institutions uh, um are you know if you look at um. Uh, Reinhold and neighbors work that neighbors work that you know institutions are inherently selfish, right? It's kind of the mm. the premise, and that they're self protecting. That's why whenever we have like these these church or organizational scandals, you see people kind of just you know get in formation, you know protective formation basically of that. Mm. If, even like well meaning, sweet, kind people can find themselves like honkering down and being used used by the system and complicit in a system, right, to protect itself. So um, systems. So I, I think that that theory that philosophical theory it, it has some weight to it and i would say that christianity that the church the church because its head is the one that gave himself up that we are uniquely <laughs> fit to be one of the only truly sac- self-sacrificial institutions that exist and so when we look at our brothers and sisters who are a part of the underground church or the persecuted church there are times when we um are in awe. We are in awe of, like right now, for example, of Ethiopian or the Ukrainian Christians who we know are in a place of deep, deep uh, burden and fear and hostility, right? And yet they're, yet they're singing, yet they're trying to shine their light, all these things that like, that's so inspiring to us. But when we look at our own, our own place, if we look at the States, what we, what we have seen happen is we've particularly seen certain segments of, of American Christianity, um, instead of saying, I'm a part of the institution that's called to suffer. Instead of telling my neighbor to suffer, I'm actually Ooh. the one that's ca- in the institution that's called to suffer for Christ's yeah. sake um, and, and uniquely equipped to do it. Instead, what we do is we say, oh, I hate to suffer. And I do too, by the way. Um, so I'm going to let you suffer or act like I don't see you suffering. And remember, mm. this is a place where we had generations, for example, of just one uh, generations of enslavement. Uh, you you had people that enslaved other people, bred other people, sold people's children away, who who cl- claimed to share the same religion. Uh, so you got to think about what does it take? What type of of spiritual, theological, psychological dysfunction and distortion does it take to be able to do that in Jesus' name? To go right up there and take communion and not skip a beat, and that's not like a that's not like an outlier population. That's a significant population of the American story. So all of that, just, and so, and that's what we all are, t- are tempted to become when our, whatever social power we have, one, we deny that we have it. And when we yes. realize that we have it, we do not submit it under the Lordship of Jesus mm. Christ to be given away. So power, all of it belongs to God. All of it has to be given an account to God. And, and I would make the case that the purpose of any social power that we have is to be like Jesus and to give it to give it away. Now, that's risky talk. I get it. And there are things that I'm like, I want to protect myself. I do too. Trust me. I really like to protect myself. <laughs> I have very good reasons to want to do that. Um, but, but I would say that as the people of God, the church, we have a unique call um, because we, we have a guaranteed hope. Like we, we claim to have this. I mean, this is what we claim. We claim we have a guaranteed mm-hmm. hope. We, we, you know, we, we, we quote these scriptures about how, um, you know, we're, we're secure in Christ. And um, we, we have an attorney, a, eternal reality and eternal hope, et cetera. So if there's anyone that's going to be brave and, and not in the name of, um, of, hurt, of hurting others, <laughs> but brave in the way of opening our arms to others, we are the ones, I believe, that are called to take that risk. And that type of love is risky. That's love, yeah. love is the riskiest part of the Christian life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Christina, something I encounter all the time is that in order to reckon with your social power and crucify it and and then give it as bread to the world, you have to reckon, you have to be able to see power. Right. And so many people can't see power. They can't see it. Um yeah, they can't see it. Uh Ben and I just wrote a a, a book and in that book we have a whole chapter on power and one of the illustrations we use is that um, people who have social capital or social power are like people who are riding a bike with wind at their back, and they just think they're fast. Um, and people who don't have social capital or social power are like they ride a bike into a headwind. And you don't, you can't, you don't know p- power exists until it's against you, and then, and then you can see it, right? And I think that's the people that I I disciple, and I'm leading and the people who listen to this podcast, many of them are waking up to this. How could I not see this? And then what your book helps us do, I think, and it's such a gift, is it is it takes all these v- different arenas or different disciplines and shows how not only is this a personal individual issue, right? I'm going to listen to Christina. She's going to share with me. That's going to impact me individually. But then also th- these uh, the power inhabits the things we build, the, 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 the culture we create, um, our institutions and organizations, uh, the, the logic that runs um, what, is, what is good behavior in, for a business person? And, and is that gendered? Is, is there race and class uh, and gender involved in that? So your book is such a gift. It helps us do that. And it, I'm just amazed at how much ground you cover and um, in such a thorough way. So thank you. Thank you for this book. Well, thank, thank you both and <laughs> for, for entering into this conversation. I re- we really do hope that it is a blessing to people and that they, that they pray through it. I mean, you know, there's obviously there's data, there's history, there's all these pieces, but there's also prayers in every chapter. <laughs> um, yes. And there, there are those processing questions, right, that we, can, yeah. that we can ask the Lord to search us. I mean, that's a part, that, that ought to be a part of Christian practice. I know that's a scary question, but I, I think the psalmist is on to something to say, you know, yep. s- to say, search me. Um, and in God searching us, that, that's not, you know, we don't end up lost, <laughs> we don't end up yeah. lost by the searching of yeah. a God. We, we end up being more and more like Jesus when God searches us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if we're not if we're not willing to for God to search us and to encounter that radical transformation, you know, that really does absolutely change everything about our lives, then what are we even doing? Right? Why are we Christians? <laughs> Stop playing at Christianity. Uh Christina, where uh are you where do you hang out online? You have a website. Would you, would you want to plug your pluggables no. for us? Look, when you when you say hang out, Matt, that makes it sound like it's a really fun place. Sometimes it's a little weird, like you know. So yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm always like, no, I mean, I like to no hang joke. out, you know, places to eat and have a good time. I was like, wait a minute, um, yeah. So 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 tw- so Twitter, you can find me on Twitter, um, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, that's that's probably my ma- my main place for pontification. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I've been I've been enjoying Instagram lately because I have a well curated uh, fun fest feed of, of 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 Instagram of life oh, of great. lovely things to look at. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. t- typically for engagement, it's going to be uh, Twitter. And then I would say again, I, I mentioned it already, but I would love for people to check out that www.faithfulantiracism.com website, and you get to hear a whole host of people kind of talking about um, yeah a v- number of topics as it relates to faithful anti racism. Great. Yeah, and the names back here, um, 
I recognize most of them. And, you know, I would listen to any interview with these people. So, yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, the book, again, is Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change. Chad Brennan, Christina Edmondson. Thanks, Christina, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a podcast. That was. It was uh, yet another podcast, but also quite a podcast. Yeah. It was, um, good. it was good to talk to Christina. Christina is somebody that I've learned from from afar for many years on her social media presence and also uh, benefiting from her podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and anytime you spend a lot of time reading from somebody and especially listening to somebody's voice, uh, you know, audibly, and then you get to talk to them, it feels like wow, this is the first time you're hearing from me, but I've, I've right. listened to you a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of the weird, the weird thing about listening to podcasts, right. And yeah. actually producing one as well is there's this kind of one, it's a real connection, but it's sort of one way. And so it yep. feels a little, a little weird. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's valuable. So. Yeah. I, my only regret, I mean, I try to live with no regrets, Ben, but my only regret no is regrets. that. That's, that's why you got that, that tattoo on your neck. Yes. No ragrats. No ragrats. Uh, this is. I, I wanted to hear more. I think. I think we can do a better job seeing power, seeing how systems mm-hmm. relate to power, and then seeing how individuals and communities can agitate and work for systemic change. This is something that yeah. I think. It may, maybe it's too much work to do in a podcast, but I do think Christina's book begins to get at that for us, and mm-hmm. we really need that. We really need that, right? Yeah. Yeah, so. I think the, I think that's right. The um, the the more one of the things that I'm learning, uh, the more we dive into these kinds of uh, issues on the podcast, and I think there maybe we can say a, a word or two about why this is so important for Christians and Christian leaders, in particular, to educate ourselves about, especially white Christian leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the things I'm I'm seeing and realizing is how prevalent and how automatic my individualistic assumptions kick in when mm. it's time to like do something or change something or take action. Right. Um, it's really, it, it, we've just been educated in, in the assumptions of individualism. Um, and so it's hard for us to number one, see power because power doesn't yep. work inside individuals. It works among people. It works between individuals. It works in a system. So it's hard for us to see power. And then I think it's hard for us to imagine systemic change. It's hard for us to see how systems work. And so it's hard for us to understand how our actions contribute to the establishment of systems yeah. and how our actions can contribute to the disruption of those harmful systems. Um, so it's, it's uh, I agree. I think it's a really key part of uh, what we need to learn Yeah. as Christians yeah. and Christian leaders right now. We do. And- you know, Christina helps us with that. So, and we're getting, you know, we're gearing up mm-hmm. here. So this is something we feel passionate about at Gravity. I mean, uh, some white yeah. guys started this and um, we're trying to use this platform that that's God's us. given. We're the white that's, guys. Okay, thank you, Ben. Uh, <laughs> we're trying to use this platform that God's given us to uh, to invite other people in who uh, maybe don't have as uh, a platform or maybe who our audience isn't familiar with. So we're trying to take right. uh, the, the privilege we have with this platform um, and seriously, and you know, we believe passionately in racial justice. If that's a gospel issue, it's a kingdom issue. American Christians must reckon with this. And so, yes. uh, Christina is, and her book she wrote with Chad is one of the 
um, obviously, it's not the first book we've done about this, but we're, we're, we're going to be talking to authors and speakers coming up here in the next several months um, mm-hmm. with a lot more, a lot more to come. So if this is uh, up yeah. your alley, then uh, yeah. get ready. Get ready to live. Who, who, are, who are some of those folks? Yeah. Uh, can you give us a preview? I can. Dominic Bois Gilliard. We're talking mm-hmm. to him about Subversive Witness. That's going to be a Gravity Commons live podcast. We had him on uh, to talk about his first book, Rethinking Incarceration, and his latest book, Subversive Witness. And it's all about how in Scripture people held worldly power mm-hmm. and used worldly power to undo unjust systems. It's a great, mm-hmm. it's a great singing book. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking mm-hmm. to Jonathan Augustine about uh, Called to Reconciliation. Uh, how the church can model justice, diversity, and inclusion. We're talking to uh, Idolette McVicker. I hope I'm saying her first name right. Um, and her book, she's a white woman, and she wrote a book called Recovering Racists, Dismantling White Supremacy and Reclaiming Our Humanity. Um, yeah. That's just a, a few, and there's more, but those yeah. are those are three yeah. that I'm particularly keen on. Yeah. 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 Those are uh, exciting if uh, I mean, and the Gravity Commons Live, if you're unaware, that is our membership community. And if you'd like to be part of those, some of those conversations, um, check us, check out gravityleadership.com slash commons. And you can uh, join us uh, in the commons and uh, participate live in those uh, podcast recordings and those conversations. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, Matt, maybe we can end with this. Um, you know, you said that... Um, understanding racism and how it has played out in our world and in our faith is a key, like it's a gospel issue. It's important for Uh our kingdom work as Christians and as Christian leaders. Maybe, could you say a little bit more about that? Maybe there's some of our listeners who are still thinking like, man, I like this, how is this not just a hobby horse issue? I, I still don't have an imagination to how to talk to other people about why this is so important, why this is core and key for gospel ministry Uh, in America right now. Hmm. What would you say? Yeah. Oh, man, Ben. (sighs) (laughs) In two minutes or less. (laughs) Gosh. I mean, I was just thinking, so we're talking, we're doing a confronting mammon with Jesus class during Lent. And one of our um, Mm -hmm. congregants is uh, taking us, she's she's getting her master's in uh, organic food, uh, local yeah. food growing, ah, man. She's she's studying food and farming. <clears throat> she's and food and farming, but the justice is intimately tied to this, right? Yeah, and I was I was just um, replying to an email that she sent about how, um, like, the food industry is geared not to make us healthy and feed as many people as possible. But the food industry is geared towards um, making the corporations that produce the food the most money. And so mm-hmm. when you're when you're when you're growing and making food to make the most money, you you end up not doing the just thing all the times. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so for instance, you will um, you will you will go into countries that are impoverished or poor and you will say things like, we're here to grow food for you. Uh, But then the food that they grow, they don't sell to them because they can't pay the same price that 
for instance, people in the U.S. would pay. So these large corporations come in, grow soybeans and corn, uh, and then take them back mm -hmm. to markets that can pay more money. Uh, so they're taking land from really poor people, and they're making the highest profit mm -hmm. with that, which is selling it out of that country, which is leaving poor people in their country poor. And then you've got all these different mm -hmm. government subsidies that are paying corn growers money to dump corn, to actually not sell it. Right. So, so you have right. you have lobbyists who have got laws passed to pay corn growers to grow corn and then destroy it, because if they put all the corn that they're growing into the market, it would drive down the price of corn so much that corn growers couldn't stay in business. But now in order to keep corn growers in business, they're they're growing corn and dumping it, wasting corn or shipping corn out of a country to sell it at a higher price, and people are starving all over the place. And so the system is made to make money. The system system the system isn't made for human flourishing and goodness and virtue. Mm -hmm. And so um I think part of living in a neoliberal uh, economic world global capitalist system is that we tend to use words like a healthy economy. And what we don't mean is everybody has their needs met. People have mm -hmm. plenty of time to rest. And there is an abundance of things that we value and less things, things we don't. Um, what we mean is like corporations, stock prices are going up and and that looks like they're making record profits again. And so we have a system that's doing what it's made to do, which is make tons of money. But but in making tons of money, you're doing you're you have to make other choices that create injustices and inequalities. Mm -hmm. That if if you weren't making that choice unto making a lot of money, you might not make it. I mean I, you know, this is a super complicated thing, Ben, but that's one example of how me, I mean, food deserts the same way, right? People who live in areas where they can't buy fresh food, right? Um, and they're, and corporations aren't incentivized. Okay, now you got me going, Ben. Corporations aren't incentivized <laughs> to yeah. provide healthy food options for people who live in food deserts, meaning there's no grocery store around them. Right. So what what kinds of food do people eat in food deserts? Non-perishable mm -hmm. foods. Foods that foods that can sit on a shelf for 2 months, right? So uh mm -hmm. broccoli and an apple can't sit on a shelf for 2 months, yeah. but but corn chips can, Fritos can. Uh and, and the thing is is that Frito-Lay, God bless him, um can make exponentially more money selling a bag of Fritos than they can selling an apple. You can you can only make so much money off of an apple, but you can make an incredible profit margin off Fritos. So these so corporations that that kind of run, um, you know, you either have you either have a grocery store, one of the big grocery stores in your community, or don't, and a corporation is making that decision. The neighborhood usually isn't. Um. Mm -hmm. They're making those decisions off profits, but then th those decisions impact the diet and choices that people who live in food deserts have. And they have access to foods that aren't good for them. I mean, I'm sorry from the first person to tell you this, but Fritos 
are less healthy for you than an apple. And so <laughs> we've got we've got, you know, people talk about obesity and diabetes and all these different health issues we have. There's yeah. a systemic element in that. There's a systemic problem, and it has to do with the way that we value and make privilege for profits over sustainability, health, mm-hmm. flourishing, etc. So, I mean, I'm talking about food right now. I'm not even talking about race, but those are some of the ways that the market, for instance, the, the market, financial markets, end up creating uh, realities that we might not otherwise choose yeah. if it wasn't for making money. Yes. Um, <clears throat> yes. Did that so, answer your question, so Ben? Maybe. Um, I think that some people might <laughs> still be wondering. Uh, they might say, hey, that, that, and I agree with you, obviously, but um, that stuff is really bad. And obviously, we, you know, we should care about that stuff. But um, can, can you connect it a bit more explicitly <clears throat> to the good news of Jesus, um, help, help people understand the, the connection there between like the good news of Jesus and our work as church leaders and as Christians and all of those systemic issues and those problems that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I don't know how to tell you this other than um, we have to learn how to read the gospels as poor people. Mm-hmm. That's I don't, that's the that's the that's the one thing I can suggest to do in order to begin to gain an imagination for how to connect this to the gospel and the kingdom. Yeah. Um, and and the book that helped me do that better than any other book I've ever read is the first half of the Politics of Jesus by Aubrey Hendricks Jr. because he really lays out the socio-economic political situation of first-century Palestine, and he helped me understand that. Um, the vast majority, two thirds to two thirds to ninety five percent of the people who Jesus was speaking to in the Gospels were mm-hmm. hand to mouth, destitute, poverty. Yeah, and and so how do you hear prayers like "Give us today this daily today our daily bread"? How do you hear a prayer like "Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors" to people? Um, who live in a world where the only people who get thrown in prison are people who are indebted and can't pay them. Mm-hmm. Like prisons aren't full of murderers and adulterers. You stoned adulterers and murderers typically were killed and other people were corporally punished, whipped or whatever. Um, but people who got thrown in prison for being in debt and not being able to pay it off. Mm-hmm. And I just, because I come from a more affluent background, it just never, I didn't have the tools to read the Gospels from a position of abject poverty. Yeah. Didn't occur to me to do that. Yeah. I was reading it from my own social location, which is what we do just by default, right? We just assume everybody's like us. And so, in order to connect how systemic justice is inherent to the Gospel of the Kingdom and Jesus's teaching and His Lordship, we have to learn to read, I think, not just the Gospels, but, but all of Scripture from a from a marginalized unprivileged place and then we begin to see some of the things he's doing can i give mm-hmm. you an example of what i preached this past weekend sure. this might need to be another podcast ben what are we doing here we're supposed <laughs> to be wrapping this thing up you just get me cranked up you got a meeting you're late for all right uh, that's true shoot so so let me give you an example real quick all right. the the 
there's this passage in Luke 21 where Jesus is like watching a rich people put put money in the in the, in the temple coffers, and then a widow puts mm-hmm. like two mites. The widow's mites is what it's you know how we talk about the story. And Jesus says, "See this lady, she's she's a destitute. She doesn't have as much as, as all these people, and she she's put in more than all these rich people. She put in all all that she had to live on." Right, and we typically mm-hmm. hold right, that story right. up as like she's the paragon of generosity. This is what it means to give, right? Not to give out of your abundance or your excess, but to give out of your lack, your scarcity. That's that's the giving God loves, but uh, that misses the context. And immediately before and after, I think is important context that makes much more sense if we read the Gospels as a poor person. So immediately before that, Jesus goes off on the scribes of the Pharisees, and among other things, he says that they they make a you know long showy prayers in marketplaces. They want the best seats at banquets, and they devour widows' houses. And there's all kinds of debates about what that looks like, you know. But um, you know, God's pretty clear in the Old Testament that I want you to take care of the widows and the orphans and the strangers and the aliens. And this, is, and this is how you're supposed to take care of them. He like m- yeah. he mandates in the law uh, social welfare for the poor. Mm-hmm. Put that in your put that in your biblical economics Sunday school pipe. curriculum. <clears throat> yeah. So and yeah. then and then immediately after the the widow is throwing everything she has into the temple coffers. It says there were some disciples there and they were commenting on how beautiful. And opulent the decorations and gifts that adorn the temple were. <clears throat> and Jesus says, You see this stuff right here? You see all this? One stone is not gonna be left on another, it's all gonna be destroyed. And so it it was been recently that it occurred to me that the widow, mm-hmm. yes, she's being very generous, but she's giving money to a temple, which is an economic, political, religious, social system that is devouring her house and is spending her money to make decorations on an opulent, decadent thing that's going to be judged and destroyed. Mm -hmm. That turns that story from an individual teaching on how to give money to a church Mm -hmm. to Jesus condemning a system that preys on the poorest of the poor and the powerlessness, powerless of the powerless, and 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 wraps it in religiosity, and stamps mm-hmm. God's name on it. Yeah, that's that's yeah. a the temple functions as a system that is uh you know housing thieves and robbers. Jesus says that that is is creating injustice in the name of God. Mm-hmm. And he damns it to hell. The system. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, so, that's an example of how reading yeah. scripture from the place of a poor person helps me see how what we're talking about with Christina and mm-hmm. in food deserts and et cetera, how that's tied and con- tied into the kingdom of God. Yeah. yeah so it, it's, it's, it's basically... A lot of, you know, instead of trying to connect our maybe overly spiritualized, we've inherited, like we read the Gospels from our social location, but we also read according to our interpretive tradition, right? Mm -hmm. And so we've inherited 
an interpretation of the scriptures and an interpretation of the gospel that has been overly spiritualized, disembodied. It's about heaven when you die. It's about sort of internal uh, individual um, uh, bliss, maybe, rather than embodied justice in the world. Yeah. Um, flowing, flowing out from, you know, all those spiritual realities are beautiful and those are great too, but it, we've disconnected it from the embodiment of social justice that yeah. um, it never was meant to be dis- disconnected from. And so the, the freedom and flourishing that, that Christ offers to us is not a disembodied internal freedom and flourishing. It is a communal embodied everybody freedom and yeah. flourishing. So anything that opposes it is antichrist yes. in a sense. Right. And so yes. these, these systems that oppose um, justice for the widows, right. And uh, justice for the poor. Yeah. These systems are, inherently anti-God and anti-Christ yes. because yes. they are opposed to the thing that God is doing in the world. Yes. So Yes. And, and I think, yeah, and there's so much more to say about this. Maybe maybe we've already shot our shot here, but, uh, you know, part of our heritage, part of the Western white um, enlightenment heritage is that we've reduced the kingdom of God down to an idea, mm-hmm. some facts that you assent to. And Jesus... Yeah. Jesus didn't get killed for talking about ideas. He got killed for organizing a new way of being human that had a different logic, a different economy, a different, what are women for? What are are the poor for? What is uh, money for? Um, What are families for? This is all... uh, It's deeply threatening. Deeply threatening. Yeah. Yep. Uh, So... Well, maybe we should do a whole podcast on this, (laughs) or maybe this will actually become a different podcast rather than the outro. But maybe, but yeah, <laughs> it's great. I, I do think oh, more. I do think more could be said about it, um, because I think we're we're sort of intuitively making a lot of these connections. Yeah. But I think it might help yeah. some of our listeners maybe catch up a little bit to say, what you know, like help me understand this connection because it has it, yeah. it for us, especially as uh, relatively affluent white people, it is hard to make this transition and to start to learn how to read, um, sort of from the perspective of the poor, read from like. In a sense, it's an act of solidarity, at least a, a beginning of an act of solidarity. Learn how to pray the Lord's Prayer as a, you know, in solidarity with the poor, to pray, to read the scriptures from that perspective, right? It's the beginning yes. of creating a new imagination that that we're praying. I'm praying for myself and for our church and for our listeners that it does result in more embodied solidarities with, uh, with the poor um, and with the marginalized communities of, of all kinds. Yes, so. Yeah, Jesus. Jesus was that's, killed because that's he where messed, Jesus said we found him. He, yes, he got killed because he messed with systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he messed so. with systems. That's why this is important. All right. Well, here's here's to messing here's to messing with systems. Let's, yeah. let's learn it. Let's learn if how got, to do this. If you want to hear us chat more about that, just let us know. Be happy to yeah. ramble on about it. Hey Ben, ramble I want to share something I learned this week, and I didn't know it as we go. Um, I found out this week okay. that um, Albert Einstein was a real person. <laughs> Didn't know that? No, all this time I thought he was a theoretical physicist. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. <laughs> <laughs> he's, just some, he's just some physicist somebody made up in their mind. It's just just a, a theoretical. What if there was a physicist named Albert Einstein? <laughs> all right, see you Very next time. Theoretical. All right, peace, y'all. <laughs>
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful or enjoyable, we'd love it if you'd tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And you can join our Gravity community online for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as our email most Fridays with curated links to articles we find interesting and helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our podcast is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the show. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.